Section 13 of The Library of the World's Best Literature, Ancient and Modern, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Joshua Paul Johnson. Library of the World's Best Literature, Ancient and Modern, Volume 1, Section 13. Selected Works by John Adams. John Adams, 1735 to 1826. John Adams, second President of the United States, was born in Braintree, Massachusetts, October 19, 1735, and died there July 4, 1826, the year after his son, too, was inaugurated President. He was the first conspicuous member of an enduringly powerful and individual family. The Adams race have mostly been vehement, proud, pugnacious, and independent, with hot tempers and strong wills, but with high ideals, dramatic devotion to duty, and the intense, democratic sentiment so often found united with personal aristocracy of feeling. They have been men of affairs first, with large practical ability, but with the deep strain of the man of letters which in this generation has outshone the other faculties, strong-headed and hard-working students, with powerful memories and fluent gifts of expression. All these characteristics went to make up John Adams but their enumeration does not furnish a complete picture of him, or reveal the viral, choleric, masterful man, and he was far more lovable and far more popular than his equally great son, also a typical Adams. From the same cause which produced some of his worst blunders and misfortunes, a generous impulsiveness of feeling which made it impossible for him to hold his tongue at the wrong time and place for talking, but so fervid, combative, and opinionated a man was sure to gain much more hate than love, because love results from comprehension, which only the few close to him could have, while hate, toward an honest man, is the outcome of ignorance, which most of the world cannot avoid. Admiration and respect, however, he had from the majority of his party at the worst of times, and the best decimonium on him is that the closer his public acts are examined, the more credit they reflect not only on his abilities, but on his unselfishness. Born of a line of Massachusetts farmers, he graduated from Harvard in 1755. After teaching a grammar school and beginning to read theology, he studied law and began practice in 1758, soon becoming a leader at the bar and in public life. In 1764 he married the noble and delightful woman whose letters furnish unconscious testimony to his lovable qualities. All through the germinal years of the Revolution he was one of the foremost patriots, steadily opposing any abandonment or compromise of essential rights. In 1765 he was counsel for Boston, with Otis and Gridley to support the town's memorial against the Stamp Act. In 1766 he was selectman. In 1768 the royal government offered him the post of Advocate General in the Court of Admiralty, a lucrative bribe to desert the opposition, but he refused it. Yet in 1770, as a matter of high professional duty, he became counsel, successfully, for the British soldiers on trial for the Boston Massacre. Though there was a present uproar of abuse, Mr. Adams was shortly after elected representative to the general court by more than three to one. In March 1774, he contemplated writing the history of the contest between Britain and America. On June 17th, he presided over the meeting at Faneuil Hall to consider the Boston Port Bill and, at the same hour, was elected representative to the first Congress at Philadelphia, September 1.
by the provincial assembly held in defiance of the government. Returning thence, he engaged in newspaper debate on the political issues till the Battle of Lexington. Shortly after, he again journeyed to Philadelphia, to the Congress of May 5, 1775, where he did on his own motion, to the disgust of his northern associates, and the reluctance even of the southerners, one of the most important and decisive acts of the revolution, induced Congress to adopt the forces in New England as a national army, and put George Washington of Virginia at its head thus engaging the southern colonies irrevocably in the war and securing the one man who could make it a success. In 1776 he was a chief agent in carrying the Declaration of Independence. He remained in Congress till November 1777 as head of the War Department, very useful and laborious though making one dreadful mistake. He was largely responsible for the disastrous policy of ignoring the just claims and decent dignity of the military commanders, which lost the country some of its best officers, and led directly to Arnold's treason. His reasons, exactly contrary to his wont, were good abstract logic but thorough practical nonsense. In December 1777 he was appointed commissioner to France to succeed Silas Dean, and after being chased by an English man-of-war, which he wanted to fight, arrived at Paris in safety. There he reformed a very bad state of affairs, but thinking it absurd to keep three envoys at one court, Dr. Franklin and Arthur Lee were there before him. He induced Congress to abolish his office, and returned in 1779. Chosen a delegate to the Massachusetts Constitutional Convention, he was called away from it to be sent again to France. There he remained, as Franklin's colleague, detesting and distrusting him, and the French foreign minister, Vergennes, embroiling himself with both, and earning a cordial return of his warmest dislike from both, till July 1780. He then went to Holland as volunteer minister, and in 1782 was formally recognized as from an independent nation. Meantime Vergennes intrigued with all his might to have Adams recalled, and actually succeeded in so tying his hands that half the advantages of independence would have been lost but for his contumacious persistence. In the final negotiations for peace, he persisted against his instructions in making the New England fisheries an ultimatum, and saved them. In 1783 he was commissioned to negotiate a commercial treaty with Great Britain, and in 1785 was made minister to that power. The wretched state of American affairs under the Confederation made it impossible to obtain any advantages for his country, and the vindictive feeling of the English made his life a purgatory, so that he was glad to come home in 1788. In the first presidential election of that year he was elected vice-president on the ticket with Washington, and began a feud with Alexander Hamilton, the mighty leader of the Federalist Party and chief organizer of our governmental machine which ended in the overthrow of the party years before its time, and had momentous personal and literary results as well. He was as good a Federalist as Hamilton, and felt as much right to be leader if he could. Hamilton would not surrender his leadership, and the rivalry never ended till Hamilton's murder. In 1796 he was elected president against Jefferson. His presidency is recognized as one of the ablest and most useful on the roll, but its personal memoirs are most painful and scandalous. The cabinet were nearly all Hamiltonians, regularly laid all the official secrets before Hamilton, and took advice from him to thwart the president. 
they disliked Mr. Adams' overbearing ways and obtrusive vanity, considered his policy destructive to the party and injurious to the country, and felt that loyalty to these involved and justified disloyalty to him. Finally, his best act brought on an explosion. The French Directory had provoked a war with this country, which the Hamiltonian section of the leaders and much of the party hailed with delight. But showing signs of a better spirit, Mr. Adams, without consulting his cabinet, who he knew would oppose it, almost or quite unanimously, nominated a commission to frame a treaty with France. The storm of fury that broke on him from his party has rarely been surpassed, even in the case of traitors outright, and he was charged with being little better. He was renominated for president in 1800, but beaten by Jefferson, owing to the defections of his own party largely of Hamilton's producing. The Federalist Party never won another election. The Hamilton section laid its death to Mr. Adams, and American history is hot with the fires of this battle yet. Mr. Adams' later years were spent at home, where he was always interested in public affairs and sometimes much too free in comments on them, where he read immensely and wrote somewhat. He heartily approved his son's break with the Federalists on the embargo, he died on the same day as Jefferson, both on the fifteenth anniversary of the Declaration of Independence. As a writer, Mr. Adams' powers show best in the work which can hardly be classed as literature, his forcible and bitter political letters, diatribes, and polemics. As in his life, his merits and defects not only lie side by side, but spring from the same source, his vehemence, self-confidence, and impatience of obstruction. He writes impetuously because he feels impetuously. With little literary grace, he possesses the charm that belongs to clear and energetic thought and sense transfused with hot emotion. John Fisk goes so far as to say that, quote, as a writer of English, John Adams in many respects surpassed all his American contemporaries, end quote. He was by no means without humor, a characteristic which shows in some of his portraits, and sometimes realized the humorous aspects of his own intense and exaggerative temperament. His remark about Timothy Pickering, that, quote, under the simple appearance of a bald head and straight hair, he conceals the most ambitious designs, end quote, is perfectly self-conscious in its quaint naivete. His life and works, edited by his grandson, Charles Francis Adams, Sr., in ten volumes, is the great storehouse of his writings, the best popular account of his life is by John T. Morse, Jr., in the American Statesman series. At the French Court From his diary, June seventh, 1778 Went to Versailles, in company with Mr. Lee, Mr. Izzard, and his lady, Mr. Lloyd, and his lady, and Mr. Francois, saw the grand procession of the knights du Saint-Esprit and du Cordon Bleu, at nine o'clock at night went to the grand couvert and saw the king queen and royal family at supper had a fine seat and situation close to the royal family and had a distinct and full view of the royal pair our objects were to see the ceremonies of the knights and in the evening and public supper of the royal family the kneelings, the bows, and the courtesies of the knights, the dresses and decorations, the king seated on his throne, his investiture of a new created knight, with the badges and ornaments of the order, and his majesty's profound and reverential bow before the altar as he retired, were novelties and curiosities to me, but surprised me much less than the patience and perseverance with which they all kneeled. For two hours together, upon the hard marble of which the floor of the chapel was made, 
the distinction of the blue ribbon was very dearly purchased at the price of enduring this painful operation four times in a year. The court to Vergennes confessed to me that he was almost dead with the pain of it, and the only insinuation I ever heard that the king was in any degree touched by the philosophy of the age was that he never discovered so much impatience under any of the occurrences of his life as in going through these tedious ceremonies of religion to which so many hours of his life were condemned by the Catholic Church. The queen was attended by her ladies to the gallery opposite to the altar, placed in the centre of the seat, and there left alone by the other ladies, who all retired. She was an object too sublime and beautiful for my dull pen to describe. I leave this enterprise to Mr. Burke, but in his description there is more of the orator than of the philosopher. Her dress was everything that art and wealth could make it. One of the maids of honour told me she had diamonds upon her person to the value of eighteen million livres, and I always thought Her Majesty much beholden to her dress. Mr. Burke saw her probably but once. I have seen her fifty times, perhaps, and in all the varieties of her dresses. She had a fine complexion, indicating perfect health, and was a handsome woman in her face and figure. But I have seen beauties much superior, both in countenance and form, in France, England, and America. After the ceremonies of this institution were over, there was a collection for the poor, and that this closing scene may be as elegant as any of the former, a young lady of some of the first families in France is appointed to present the box to the knights. Her dress must be as rich and elegant in proportion as the queen's, and her hair, motions, and courtesies must have as much dignity and grace as those of the knights. It was a curious entertainment to observe the easy air, the graceful bow, and the conscious dignity of the knight in presenting his contribution, and the corresponding ease, grace, and dignity of the lady in receiving it were not less charming. Every muscle, nerve, and fibre of both seemed perfectly disciplined to perform its functions. The elevation of the arm, the bend of the elbow, and every finger in the hand of the knight in putting his ludor into the box, appeared to be perfectly studied, because it was perfectly natural. How much devotion there was in all this I know not, but it was a consummate school to teach the rising generation the perfection of the French air, and eternal politeness and good breeding. I have seen nothing to be compared to it in any other country. At nine o'clock we went and saw the king, queen, and royal family at the Grand Couvert, whether M. François, a gentleman who undertook upon this occasion to conduct us, had contrived a plot to gratify the curiosity of the spectators, or whether the royal family had a fancy to see the raw American at their leisure, or whether they were willing to gratify him with a convenient seat in which he might see all the royal family and all the splendors of the place, I know not. But the scheme could not have been carried into execution, certainly without the orders of the king. I was selected, and summoned, indeed, from all my company, and ordered to a seat close beside the royal family. The seats on both sides of the hall, arranged like the seats in a theatre, were all full of ladies of the first rank and fashion in the kingdom, and there was no room or place for me but in the midst of them. It was not easy to make room for one more person. However, room was made, and I was situated between two ladies— with rows and ranks of ladies above and below me, and on the right hand and on the left, and ladies only. 
My dress was a decent French dress, becoming the station I held, but not to be compared with the gold and diamonds and embroidery about me. I could neither speak nor understand the language in a manner to support a conversation, but I had soon the satisfaction to find it was a silent meeting, and that nobody spoke a word but the royal family to each other, and they said very little. The eyes of all the assembly were turned upon me, and I felt sufficiently humble and mortified, for I was not a proper object for the criticisms of such a company. I found myself gazed at, as we in America used to gaze at the sachems who came to make speeches to us in Congress. But I thought it very hard if I could not command as much power of face as one of the chiefs of these six nations, and therefore determined that I would assume a cheerful countenance, enjoy the scene around me, and observe it as coolly as an astronomer contemplates the stars. Inscriptions of fructus belly were seen on the ceiling, and all about the walls of the room. Among paintings of the trophies of war, probably done by the order of Louis the Fourteenth, who confessed in his dying hour, as his successor and exemplar Napoleon will probably do, that he had been too fond of war. The king was the royal carver for himself and all his family. His majesty ate like a king, and made a royal supper of solid beef, and other things in proportion. The queen took a large spoonful of soup, and displayed her fine person and graceful manners, in alternately looking at the company in various parts of the hall, and ordering several kinds of seasoning to be brought to her, by which she fitted her supper to her taste. THE CHARACTER OF FRANKLIN FROM LETTER TO THE BOSTON PATRIOT MAY fifteenth, 1811 Franklin had a great genius, original, sagacious, and inventive, capable of discoveries in science no less than of improvements in the fine arts and the mechanic arts. He had a vast imagination, equal to the comprehension of the greatest objects, and capable of a cool and steady comprehension of them. He had wit at will. He had a humor that, when pleased, was delicate and delightful. He had a satire that was good-natured or caustic. Horace or Juvenile, Swift or Rabelais, at his pleasure. He had talents for irony, allegory, and fable, that he could adapt with great skill to the promotion of moral and political truth. He was master of that infantine simplicity which the French call naivete, which never fails to charm in Phaedrus and La Fontaine, from the cradle to the grave. He had been blessed with the same advantages of scholastic education in his early youth, and pursued a course of studies as unembarrassed with occupations of public and private life as Sir Isaac Newton. He might have emulated the first philosopher, although I am not ignorant that most of his positions and hypotheses have been controverted, I cannot but think he has added much to the mass of natural knowledge, and contributed largely to the progress of the human mind, both by his own writings and by the controversies and experiments he has excited in all parts of Europe. He had abilities for investigating statistical questions, and in some parts of his life has written pamphlets and essays upon public topics with great ingenuity and success. But after my acquaintance with him, which commenced in Congress in 1775, his excellence as a legislator, a politician, or a negotiator most certainly never appeared. No sentiment more weak and superficial was ever avowed by the most absurd philosopher than some of his, particularly the one he procured to be inserted in the first constitution of Pennsylvania, and for which he had such a fondness as to insert it 
in his will. I call it weak, for so it must have been, or hypocritical, unless he meant by one satiric touch to ridicule his own republic or throw it into everlasting contempt. I must acknowledge, after all, that nothing in life has mortified or grieved me more than the necessity which compelled me to oppose him so often as I have. He was a man with whom I always wished to live in friendship, and for that purpose omitted no demonstration of respect, esteem, and veneration in my power, until I had unequivocal proofs of his hatred, for no other reason under the sun, but because I gave my judgment in opposition to his in many points which materially affected the interests of our country, and in many more which essentially concerned our happiness, safety, and well-being. I could not, and would not, sacrifice the clearest dictates of my understanding, and the purest principles of morals and policy in compliance to Dr. Franklin. End of section 13